I was in the state of like, oh, why would you give up now? Like we were so close, like, you know, we may have like done this 10 times, but maybe at the 11th time it'll work kind of thing. And so we were like really at odds. I mean, I, I think that was like a really hard time for both of us. Welcome to Inside Out, the podcast where season one was all about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. All right, we have reached the season one finale. And by popular demand, today we are focusing on my startup journey. That sounds really narcissistic to say. But anyway, I wanted to bring in someone I could have a candid conversation with about the ups and downs of startup life, because so much of the journey is just about stumbling in the dark. And so I invited my friend Sev from episode four to interview me. Sev is a founder himself, and I actually worked for his startup at one point, and you'll definitely hear about some of the lessons we learned there. Similar to all our previous episodes, this one goes in chronological order. And so we start with my high school days where I started a neighborhood piano school. And then we talk about how I helped design a student-run cafe at McGill University where I went to college. That's probably when I caught the entrepreneurship bug before I went on to work with an angel investor to build out a clean tech startup community in Vancouver. And then my biggest startup accomplishment and probably failure to date is co-founding the first ever classroom design platform called Room to Learn. We take you behind the scenes of how that all got started, some of the biggest struggles, what we were trying to accomplish, and some of my learnings along the way. In parallel, we also talk about my research on food systems and sustainability from growing tomatoes in urban greenhouses to making acorn tofu. Whether or not you're an entrepreneur, what I hope you take away from this episode is a glimpse at some of the highs and lows of startup life, from the excitement of building something from scratch to the burnout of doing too much. If that resonates with you at all, you're going to love season two, which will be all about how to build a thriving creative business without losing your mind. If you're an entrepreneur yourself, I would love to hear from you and what topics you uh, would love to learn more about and explore. I'm taking suggestions on some solo episode topics as well. So if you have ideas on that, please let me know in the comments below, or you can DM me directly on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. If you are watching this on YouTube, definitely take advantage of the time codes below if you want to skip to different parts of my story. And before we dive into the episode, I want to take a moment and say a big, big thank you for tuning in and watching and listening wherever you are. This podcast has been a dream come true. I've learned so much, met so many wonderful people. And whether this is your first episode or you've been tuning into them all, I'm so, so grateful that you are spending time here with me today. All right, I will keep this intro short as we have an hour long episode to dive into, which I really hope you enjoy onto the show. We're live. Episode 20. Woo. 20? 21, technically. 21, 21. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. We've done 20 guests, of which you are one. So. I am one of them. I Probably yes. the best episode. If, if people want to find out, that's episode <laughs> three. 
I think. Oh. Jane, I don't know if we're getting into this too soon, but as the only recurring male guest, is that right? Well, the only recurring guest. So the far, only recurring yes. guest, right? People are people are going to start wondering, right? Why are these two characters <laughs> being developed together, right? I mean, this is where people's minds go. Do you are have you anything to, to say to that because, kind of um, viewer? <laughs> well, I, my my like intro to like having you interview interview me was that you were the first founder that I interviewed. Well, technically, if you don't count Jennifer. Oh yes, full circle. Full yeah, circle. it's a full circle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I also way. love the Zen garden that you're in right now. I fucking love it. It's oh, sorry. Uh, this <laughs> no, is no. You can say what you want. I can say whatever I want. It's my fucking podcast. We can. Whoa! Do <laughs> all right. All right. Madness. No, it's uh, it's great. There's like this. It's like a secluded outdoor area, and uh, yeah, there's like some bamboo. You can just come out here, sit, meditate. It's I love wonderful. it. <clears throat> also, I do have to comment on my fit and my look today in case you weren't going to ask about that because okay <laughs> I, I wasn't i wasn't so if going anyone to noticed this is the outfit i wore for the cover photo of the podcast whoa and we may or may not be retiring that logo and so if you have strong feelings let me know but I wanted to, you know, wear it just in case. And also to, like, represent. The Enough show, beating know? around the bush, Jane. Look, fans, artists, Jane needs some fan artwork to put on <laughs> that album cover. So if you are an artist, let's see it. Let's see some uh, awesome depictions of Jane for that cover photo. What is the prize for the one you select, Jane? A thousand years of affection from me. <laughs> That's worth it. Having having received maybe maybe the equivalent of, well, actually I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. Where are we going with? This? Yeah, where are we going here? All right, all right. Let's, uh... <laughs> oh, this is gonna be cut. Oh boy. Okay, uh, so Jane. Yes. End of an era. End of an era. Twenty apps. Well, yeah. I guess season one. Right. And here we That's are, true. twenty episodes later. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. I have definitely learned a lot. I feel like season one was like just getting my feet wet in the podcasting world. And I just joined a podcast accelerator. Whoa, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm getting serious about this. Um, But one of the first steps is honing your audience and finding your niche. Essentially, I want to be serving creative entrepreneurs who want to build businesses that fit into and that feed the lives they want to live. Yeah, I really like that. Because my own startup journey was grounded in like the very glamorized VC funded startup world where you're meant to pour your whole heart and soul and and life into this one thing in hopes that it will grow into something bigger than yourself, Yeah, Um, which I, I still think is like a noble thing to do. However, it's not sustainable. And for most people, that's not really the way to find success in your life. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons I've, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and just talking to you in general is you do have this perspective where, I mean, I guess we'll get into it, but like you worked for a VC, you've, you've, I mean, at this point you've spoken to all these people who have had these experiences, but you've had experiences yourself, right? Like you've started up a company, you've worked with uh, my company when it was starting up. We've seen all these kind of early stage disasters and stuff. And we really know about kind of the less glamorous 
part of it. Yeah. Um, well, I worked with an angel of an investor at one oh, point. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was probably my first like real exposure to how startups could be a an avenue for social change. Because um, my background, my undergrad was in sustainability. And so I was like the most granola person you could you could imagine. Now, like, what do you was... mean by granola here? <laughs> um, I never bought anything. I biked everywhere. I was raw vegan at one point, but Whoa. otherwise vegan and vegetarian. Um, I cared so much about composting. I, I think like to the extent that I was like that annoying friend who always was like, oh, are you like not going to finish your food? Are you going right. to like throw that in the garbage? Um, you know, stuff like that. And then as I got older, I've like <laughs> chilled out a lot more in that regard. Um, because I see the bigger picture that, you know, these individual acts like do matter to some extent. They're more around like, how you educate yourself and how to integrate these practices in your own life. But um, when it comes to, you know, climate change and making an impact with carbon footprint, really like the big ticket items are at an industry level or at a city level. And those are right. things that not just one person can solve. Um, and so uh, after college, I first worked for Canada's largest family foundation. On this whoa, side. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Well, we are, we're jumping right in. Wow. I didn't well, even I know gonna, that. I was going to come to the angel investor piece. When, when I was originally writing down questions for this interview, I thought I'd start at high school where people, oh, I feel like yeah. high school is where a lot of people discover themselves, but you were actually doing stuff before high school. You started a business at 13. That was a very small human doing this. So <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely curious about the context. What, what, what happened there? 13 years old. Yeah. Funny enough, I'm probably like the same height slash similar size as to when I was 13. <laughs> and in Canada, you start uh, high school at 13. So it was around high school that oh. I started my first business as a piano teacher. Like any good Asian kid, I started learning piano when I was five. But yeah, I had gotten my performance diploma probably when I was like 14 or 15. And around that time, my piano teacher had like extra or had students that she couldn't take on. And so she was like, Hey, like, do you want to, you know, um, like try teaching? And I was like, sure, why not? And so I, yeah, um, started this small business of teaching kids and some adults actually in my neighborhood, piano and music theory, and did that pretty much all throughout high school. All right. So you kind of at the beginning of high school, you started this piano business. I, I, I actually don't know a lot about this. What was Jane like in high school? I guess I was like an art kid. Like I loved, I loved my photography class. Uh, I took AP art and I was in band. I was in like our concert band and tried jazz band. Yeah, I was kind of a floater too. Like I have, I had certain friends that I'm still close with now, but I wasn't like, like one of the popular kids or one of the sporty kids per se, but I was like friends with most people in my grade. I see. I see. Got mm -hmm. along with most people. And were you very studious? Like, Oh, uh, hell you... yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> so there's still this kind of like core driven personality uh, at the center of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So then getting past high school, there's uh, a transition here to like, college and all of that. By the way, where did you go to high school? Was that in Canada? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was okay. in Richmond, British Columbia. That's near Vancouver, maybe? Yeah, it's like a suburb of Vancouver. 
Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So growing up in Vancouver, doing high school stuff, getting along with everyone. And then it's like, all right, time for college. What's mm-hmm. what's going through your head? At one point, my obsession was to get into an Ivy League school or like some kind of state school or like a U.S. school that was like, you know, prestigious or whatever. Right. And I like went We're talking the whole- Harvard. We're talking, talking MIT. H Vard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Harvard was definitely on the list. I got an interview for that, and I was so nervous for that interview that. Uh, never mind. This is. Oh no, we have to go into this now. <laughs> we have to go into this. Let's role play. Let's role play it out. All right. So I'm the Harvard interviewer, and I go, "Hi, Jane. It's uh, it's great to have you here. Just want to ask you a couple questions and see if you're the right fit for Harvard." Okay, Hogwarts. <laughs> Hogwarts? What? Yeah. I so it actually ended up being a great conversation. It was like two hours with this software engineer who like, graduated from Harvard like thirty years ago. Okay. And um, we met at a cafe, and he like bought me a I don't know tea or something. And yeah. I was so nervous that I didn't drink out of it the whole time. Really? And so it just got cold. Yeah. But he took me to his office upstairs and my mom drove me there. And after 30 minutes or 40 minutes, she like tried calling me because she was like, oh, uh, like, right. is this like some like setup or something? <laughs> but no, we just got deep in conversation and uh, yeah, came out two hours later. Sounds like this interview went pretty well, but you kind of made it sound like it didn't go so well. So I, I don't think I ended up getting into Harvard for college. But in the end, I ended up going to McGill and stayed in Canada, for which I'm very, very happy about. Yes, McGill sounds pretty awesome, which uh, gets us to, let's see, which, do I have a question for this? I don't. Okay, so how was <laughs> McGill? <laughs> but it, so I've met a bunch of your friends from McGill. So I feel like there was a lot going on with you at McGill, right? Like there's some great people. Our friend uh, who I think you interviewed, Brianna from uh, Unruly Brianna. Studios. Uh, she, I met her uh, independently of you, but she's such a great entrepreneur doing crazy stuff in the ed tech space. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she's yeah. such a like quintessential McGillian too, in that like she does all these things, like plays all these sports. Now she's an entrepreneur. She's super personable. Um, yeah, she and I organized a conference together called Ampersand, which brought together people interested in arts and science broadly. Um, Wait, you put together a conference? <laughs> this was at mm-hmm. McGill. Yeah, this was at McGill. What, okay, so you're bringing together people who like art and science. Like, is, is it like a science fair? What's going on here? So that that year, I was really interested in urban planning and urban studies, and so the theme of the conference was called multiplicity. And I got this amazing journalist that I was obsessed with, Charles Montgomery. Um, he wrote a book called Happy Cities, hmm. and uh, we got him to come and be the keynote speaker. We cool. also had a group that did. They were called something funny, like mammalian something, and they were like an improv group, and they did a session. Um, we had one of Bree's friends uh, who's like a illustrator. He came and like illustrated the whole conference on a whiteboard. Do you remember when Story of Stuff was popular, like those videos? S- Story of Stuff? Uh... Yeah, Annie, someone. Anyways. <laughs> she, Walk me she... through it. Yeah, she she creates these videos on YouTube where she illustrates um, like complex 
concepts like like planned obsolescence, for example. Planned obsolescence. You're gonna have to break down this word for me. What is <laughs> what is what is this? It's the idea that the like physical goods that we have today, um, most of what's manufactured has a sort of obsolescence or end of life already planned in it. And so oh, like gotcha. this phone is only like its full life cycle might be like five to 10 years, but you know, Apple releases a new phone every year or so. And so the way that they come out with products and launch things is such that like, you're going to retire your old things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So I didn't ask this, but like you went to McGill, what were you, what were you studying there? So you said you were interested in urban planning. Was that your focus? Um, I was kind of all over the place in first year. So I went in as a bachelor of arts student and I thought about moving to management. I thought about doing med school, which funny side story. I, you know, told my family doctor about that and he basically cautioned me against it. He was like, it is oh. a very long like journey and you can't turn back. Also, I found out later I'm like deathly afraid of blood. So, oh, really? so that would have not worked out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then randomly, my friend Fanola brought me to this uh, like cocktail party event one time for students in the environmental studies program. And I just found everyone there like so refreshingly, so passionate and knowledgeable about, you know, what they were studying, you know, whether it was water yeah. systems or food systems or what have you. And um, yeah, I kind of like on the spot just signed up for this new sustainability program. So that was a like big thread through my McGill days. Yeah, that McGill was like a very dense time. I would say there was like many different uh, like factions of who Jane was. So there was like right. the academic sustainability Jane. There was the acapella Jane. There was the ampersand like conference organizer. Yeah, I studied abroad in France. That was like a big part of my experience. There was the like party hard every weekend Jane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then of course there was the like fireside cafe sustainability, like business side right, that I was right. really into. You uh, organized a student run cafe, um, which is kind of a big deal. I know my college, we had to shut down our student run union because uh, it's very easy to mismanage these things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great segue because that's exactly where this came out of. There had been a cafe in the architecture school, but it was like terribly mismanaged. It was like all student run and, you know, yeah. finances were missing. And so the school administration shut it down. As a response, the student society put together a business case competition for teams of students to come up with a new concept that was financially you know, socially and uh, environmentally sustainable. And so I entered that competition, got paired up with an engineer, a nutritionist, and another environmental studies major. And, um, oh man, we learned so much. It was, it was also like a very well-designed competition. There was maybe hmm. like eight or so teams that made the like final list that we were in. And every week or two weeks, we met with a different mentor who helped with us with either business strategy or something around like health and nutrition or architecture. One of the team members had a friend who owned a restaurant in town and oh, we wow. like 
went to the restaurant one day while it was empty to just like film our commercial. So we like filmed a whole thing. Um, we tabled a bunch and like sold baked goods. And in the end, like there was this big like expo kind of thing where we showcased our concept and we pitched to a panel of judges. Um, this was like a whole semester long process. Wow. And in the end, we won first place. Nice. Um, so that was my first pitch, pitch competition. That's probably when I like caught the bug of entrepreneurship and oh, cool. it was really re rewarding because the idea was that the winning concept would get pieces of it implemented. So the following year I was uh, abroad in France, but when I came back, there was a student run cafe in place that took some of our concepts. Wow. Cool. Okay. So, so basically you pitched this thing, you put it together, did these commercials and stuff like that left for a year. And when you came back, they had implemented your kind of design, but only, only kind of like there... parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any parts? I mean, first of all, super cool. Like you're seeing like kind of your vision, at least in some part come to crazy, but were there any parts that were like a little bit weird or like, there wasn't a great handoff process because nobody from our team was actually involved in the implementation. Oh. So first of all, the site that we were given, like the location was totally different from the location they ended up using, oh, which was like this upstairs counter instead of like a whole cafe area. And so right off the bat, it wasn't like our, our concept was called cafe fireside and it was the idea of like you know bringing together a cozy atmosphere with sustainable seasonal um you know ingredients and dishes and like there was no <laughs> cozy to be had <laughs> so that was that was kind of a bummer but i know these kinds of things take years to develop uh which right. is something i learned later running my own business yeah yeah for sure so I guess, uh, so you said McGill was very dense. You ran this student run cafe, you ran a conference, uh, anything, anything else like, you know, uh, worthy of mentioning, I'm sure many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just had a lot of fun. Um, I guess the sustainability program was fairly new when I joined it. And so we didn't have like a student group yet. And so a couple of friends and I got together and formed what is now known as SAS, the Student Society or Students Association of Sustainability, Science and Society. Nice. Very long, but so a yeah, lot of we're S's. The, we're the it's more like SAS. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cool. And then I, I remember uh, you were telling me you wrote like this might be in the Harvard days, but you wrote a, like a thesis about like acorns, right? Mm -hmm. But is yeah. that later? <laughs> that, yeah. So that was for my master's thesis. Although my McGill undergrad thesis was on tomatoes. So there's definitely this trend of, yeah, <laughs> me being interested in food and food systems at the time, like the McGill thesis was a lot more um, scientific. So it was around like, Basically, I wanted to figure out, like, is urban agriculture all that it's, like, cut out to be? You know, is it is it worth, like, buying tomatoes that are grown on a rooftop in urban Montreal, even though it's way more expensive? Um, so I compared, like, three ways of growing tomatoes, like, urban greenhouse versus local regional greenhouse versus imported from Florida. And I found that, um, you know, economy of scale matters and the local greenhouse um, outside of the city was actually the most resource efficient. But yeah, later on, I became more interested in 
like the social and cultural dimensions of food um, and not just like, hey, let's look at the carbon footprint of things because there's so much that's personal about, you know, what you eat and how you eat it. So what's like a very personal food and then like something that's more impersonal, right? Yeah. So like a, just looking at a tomato, for example, you know, you can figure out like what's the carbon footprint of like, mm-hmm. you know, it growing it and it traveling. But like, uh, you know, why are we eating fresh tomatoes in the winter in the first place? right? Um, Versus maybe something more local and traditional in that region. Um, Mm -hmm. So these were the questions that were in my mind when I thought of this dish that my family back in China eats in the summers. And it, it looks like this like brown tofu dish. Actually, that sounds very unappealing. Um, (laughs) Basically, it's this acorn tofu dish. Um, It's made from acorn flour. People in the rural villages, they actually forage these acorns from the forest um, in their backyards, and they'll bring it back. Um, And acorns, as is, are actually toxic because they contain too much too many tannins but if you process them the right way you can uh you like basically grind them and soak them in water and let them dry for a couple days you can actually use that pulp grind it into a flour and use that to make bread tofu you know cookies soup what have you so that's and, the um, at home acorn recipe you you grind up your acorns you put it in a in like a bucket of water And then you you scoop them out after a while? Yeah, there's this, uh, you kind of have to do that like a few times. Yeah, I don't remember the exact steps, but I can link it. There's like This seems like a DIY video. I think, uh, vote, comment, comment below if Jane (laughs) should release a DIY how to eat or make make acorn tofu. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. You actually made some of this, right? So I actually haven't made the tofu dish, but I have made acorn cookies, which I did end up serving at my thesis presentation. Whoa. Mm -hmm. That's how you get them. And I served acorn liqueur. So I got all my, um, (laughs) (laughs) all my, what are they called? Like my, my panelists. yeah, Yeah. All my panelists drunk. So that's a that's a good life lesson, a good takeaway for uh, for our listeners here. Like, if you have to do a master's thesis, which is which is a lot of pressure, right? Like, so they pull up a panel, and maybe there were were there people in the audience for your for your master's thesis? Yeah. So I lucked out. I actually got the final slot of the day, and I got a spot in the auditorium at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. And so by that point, like everyone else who had presented that day were like done and just like wanted to come see the final thing. So there was probably like between 50 and 100 people in the room. Whoa, that's that's big. <laughs> Which was big. Um, and I had planned this whole theatrical presentation. I had it, my oh sister my flew in and helped me do the slides. I had my two two friends, both named Kevin, just by coincidence. They helped <laughs> me uh, serve the acorn liquor and the cookies. And they did this whole uh, dry ice thing as I walked out onto the stage. No way. Yeah. Um, so I, I should explain too. So for my master's thesis, I wrote a children's book about acorns in the year 2047, which um, I chose because it was the year 2017. And it takes an oak tree about 30 years to mature and bear fruit. 
And so I wrote this book um, around three characters, kind of their their livelihoods around eating acorns and foraging acorns. And so, yeah, the presentation was like, imagine this like dark theater and there's like these videos up on the big screen and I come out <laughs> amidst the dry ice and I like come out as this like narrator reading the book and the story and you Whoa. see these like images of 2047 it was pretty cool i had like this drone owl that would deliver the acorns around the world <laughs> this this master's thesis could easily was, be an entire <laughs> podcast episode it was like yeah it was a little <laughs> speculative but as you can see i had fun with it yeah it it kind of sounds like the best thesis presentation ever <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm so glad I got to do that. Is there a video of this? Is there like a record of uh, of this event? <sighs> there actually is. I don't know if I oh. want to link it, though. Because uh. there was a live stream of it. Like my parents and some friends tuned in. Oh, cool. But you don't get like the essence of being in the room, you know? Right. Um, if you're not I sipping can't... the liquor, it's, exactly. it's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> but I can link my children's book and paper, I guess, if people want to read it. I've been thinking about publishing the children's book. So if anyone has advice on publishing, let me know. All right. So, all right. So you've presented your master's thesis. It's amazing. Um, you are lauded by your peers. Um, and then uh, you leave Harvard. Mm -hmm. Nowhere, nowhere to go. There's no, no plan, just two suitcases. What, <laughs> what happens next? Um, it was a little more organic than that. So while I was doing my master's, I fell into the startup that would become Room to Learn. Mm. Um, so actually my first probably month or two at Harvard, I got this email saying there was a hackathon happening at the Graduate School of Education. And hmm. um, at this point, I should say right before moving to Boston for grad school, I was working with that angel investor in Vancouver, oh, running nice. a nonprofit called Green green tech exchange. And basically my job was like professional networking. <laughs> I organized these monthly networking events, like speaking events to bring together people interested in clean tech. So it was like, um, you know, business owners, startup founders, investors, government agencies, professors, students. And so you yeah. are the person <laughs> with the clipboard. You're like making sure that the speaker gets on the stage at the right time. You're emailing those people like you are you're essentially setting up conferences every month but for clean tech exactly i did have a great time in that role in that job the reason i brought that up is because i had entrepreneurship on my mind as i was going into harvard and right. so when i saw this hackathon i was like well sounds like a great weekend let me check it out let's give it a try so i'm i cannot wait to dig into this because this is where we get into some of the messier parts. So my uh, last startup was also started at a hackathon. And so <laughs> the hackathon startups are uh, a little bit of a different, a different breed with their, with their starting because there's usually many people involved and then there's some, some changes and stuff like that as it goes on, because at a hackathon, everybody's fully committed, but then, but things change. So uh, uh, I haven't heard this, but okay. So room to learn started at a hackathon. 
Um, where where are we? Are we in Boston? Yeah, so this is in Boston. And funny enough, the person who would become my co-founder for the next two to three years, Grace, she actually trekked up from Brooklyn, took the train Whoa. up. And the hackathon was technically only open to Harvard students, but she just showed up. And luckily, my now friend, Matt Joe, who was organizing the conference, was at the door. And she just showed up. She was like, I'm here for the conference. And he just <laughs> let her in. <laughs> Nice. Good. So guy. we have Matt to thank for the rest of history. That's um, the hustle. That's the hustle, folks. You yeah. drive in. You you assert yourself. It really <laughs> is. To Harvard exclusive events. <laughs> yeah. So she and I hit it off. We were both interested in geography and space, and um, she, as a middle school science teacher, was actually changing up her classroom layout every day based on her lesson plans. If you think of a traditional school, it's like, uh, you know, cinder block and dark hallways right. and fluorescent lighting. And then within the classroom, there's this very traditional image of like 30 students in chairs and desks facing the front. Yep. And if you walk into a classroom today, I mean, obviously COVID has changed everything. You probably right. just have like the same setup with more space in between. Um, <laughs> but it's generally that same layout which is great for lecture style teaching but you know what about project-based learning what about collaborative and creative projects and you know teaching and learning has been evolving in that way and so that was kind of the space that we were trying to tackle is like like how might we change classroom spaces to be more suitable for more diverse learning and teaching needs? And so we thought about that problem over three years from a teacher perspective, a student perspective, school perspective, and district level. So and this was you and Grace. You and Grace met at this hackathon and then worked mm -hmm. for three years together. So it's yes. not like my story at all. There were not people dropping in and out. These were two committed <laughs> people. Well, what I didn't mention was that there were two other people from the start, and it was actually four of us for that first mm -hmm. uh, school year. One other woman was from the Harvard Business School, and we had a guy who was from the education school. Yeah, by the end of the year, I mean, there was some misalignments, and and people had to go on their own ways. So these <laughs> like, these conversations yeah. are crazy. Um, and I've been I've been in hackathon startups like several times. Like people want to start businesses after, right? And you kind of have these alignment issues right after the hackathon all the time. So I'm super mm -hmm. curious, like, what were these conversations like, right? Like, so maybe that person they wanted like a regular salary, and like, mm -hmm. or maybe they just weren't that interested in it, or maybe they wanted to take it somewhere else. Like, what was what? How were they misaligned? So I was in my early 20s at the time, right? I was 23. And so I had like no obligations, no responsibilities. I hadn't had a cushy job before where I had like a certain expectation of lifestyle. Right. And that was something I just like at the time wasn't able to empathize with uh, my older co-founders. Yep. Um, for instance, with the woman from HBS, she, you know, had come from a consulting background. And so she was used to a certain lifestyle, a certain salary. And I think that was kind of her expectation going in as well, is that, you know, if we get grant money, you and I are going to be taking a big chunk of that. Whereas right. like, I think Grace and I were thinking a lot more scrappy, like we can withhold salary for a while and just like run with the business and, right. and see where it takes us. Right. And I think there's a misconception 
that as you get older, you get more money. And so you can kind of like, just get like, you know, just do whatever you want for a while. But actually, uh, salary is kind of addictive. Uh, it's a very nice thing to have. And uh, people don't want to give that up. And, and kind of rightfully so, you start to get stable. You know, you maybe are, are dating people and that can be expensive or like you're thinking about buying a house and stuff like that. So right out of college, uh, we, we did a similar thing. Like, you don't really know what it means. You're not, you, you've never had the drug of, of uh, a salary. So you can kind of be crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. And it totally is golden handcuffs. Like I ha I had this recently where, I had been thinking about quitting my job for a while to work on this podcast and uh, it was just so tough. Like for some reason, I just thought like, oh, I, well, I can just keep going and like have this be my side hustle. And I recognize that not everyone has the ability to just like quit cold turkey and like work on a passion project. For me, I like right now in my career, I have the confidence to know that if I really needed to get a job or if I needed to get paid, I could find a way to make that happen. But I think like the fear of not having a paycheck, it's like it's such a roadblock to, yeah. to a lot of people. And I think that's so sad. You know, it's like you, yeah. you could be so much happier and like doing something that really matters and and makes money if you just like take one little leap, but that one leap is a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this was, this was one of the problems, uh, kind of confronting your co-founder here. Um, and then also it, it sounds like there were some other things that we, we, uh, probably aren't safe to get into. Yeah. <laughs> there was just some things. like money things that, uh, you know, also were missing. Oh, a lot of money things. Okay. So yeah. basically money things. <laughs> I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it comes down to that, right? Like startups who, uh, you know, end up winding down, either the co-founders split up or they run out of money, and which was our case too. Like fast forward three years, we had tried so many different business models. The hard thing about business was, or our business was that one, we were in education, which was already like a super tough industry to yeah. break into. Um, it's very relationship driven. It's like a very legacy industry. And then the other piece of it was like, yeah, because we were kind of like social mission driven, we didn't come with like a, um, a customer need in mind that, you know, led to a budget line. And so right. we had to figure that out. But I mean, the, the good thing is that as soon as we launched our platform, which is, you can think of it as a Pinterest for teachers, mm -hmm. um, we got inbound interest from schools and districts wanting me and Grace to come in and either do professional development, like hands-on workshops, or to actually help them design their spaces. So yeah. that's how we ended up actually making money. And all of that funded our experiments with, you know, how do we monetize a platform for teachers? Because we know, right. know that teachers are strapped for cash. They're not going to pay for it. But how do we provide value to them through these different avenues? Yeah, I think you've touched on so much. Um, education is uh, extremely difficult to sell into, especially for people who don't have the connections in education. Like um, we both did young ed tech startups. And so those connections are uh, really hard to have. But the other thing I think, was really interesting you touched on is you built, you had built a whole platform for teachers to upload their projects to projects, meaning like spaces they had designed their classrooms to be like these learning education spaces. 
And that actually became like kind of a proof that you guys knew what you were doing to get you this kind of consulting relationship. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was like, we didn't do any PR ourselves, mm -hmm. but just the platform going live ended up getting picked up by Huffington Post and the Smithsonian Magazine and the, you know, Harvard's um, GSD Magazine and, and all these publications. And those ended up, you know, driving traffic and momentum to our site. Yeah. And you guys did some publications yourself, right? Yeah. So we were actually putting out weekly blogs on Medium, mm -hmm. which is still live if you look up Room to Learn. And these were articles mainly for teachers on how to think about designing for different use cases and different types of lessons. Plug as well, I ended up writing a research paper about creative learning and how that ties into spaces. I basically observed for a year how students use space at the Graduate School of Design and the Innovation Lab and put together this structure or this model that I call the creative learning spiral. So that's published. That's actually published as a book chapter, and I can link that out below. Yeah, I think something that a lot of people go through that is also uh, a huge part of your story is you guys built uh, kind of a technology product, but uh, if I remember, neither of you were um, technical co-founders, meaning you guys couldn't jump into the code and just you know whip up something in a weekend. Uh, so how was that, uh, just putting all that together? I think that's a really challenging thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the first weekend uh, at the hackathon, we actually just put together a site on Wix. Yeah, hmm. we put together a Wix site and that was our prototype and that was enough for the pitch comp. Oh, I forgot to mention after the hackathon, we did a pitch competition a month later and we won first place. And so we started out um, like the four Hold on. Did you ever lose a pitch competition? <laughs> like, did you, is there, are there any second places? That should be my claim to fame. <laughs> Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So if you're doing a startup, get Jane on your team. She will win all the pitch competitions. Yeah, just pitch competitions. That no, of course. <laughs> do we... they all feature dry ice, by the way? <laughs> do you always walk out in a cloud yeah, that's, of smoke? That's the secret ingredient, really, <laughs> to success. But that that really validated the idea. And so we started out with this like little seed pot of $5,000. And I think that's really what glued the four of us together as that yeah. initial group and kept us going was like, you know, we had like the CEO and founder of Panorama Education in that panel. Oh, wow. And so that was like a huge validation point for us. Yeah. Um, of course, now I've learned like a pitch competition and getting press and these vanity metri metrics are so different from actually, you know, serving customers and bringing in revenue and like all the things you should be carrying out, caring about as a business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when it's so hard to, to sell in this, in, in that space mm -hmm. where sales can take six months. Um, yeah. it's, it's a completely different game. Yeah, totally. Okay. So you said it, you won a pitch competition after, but I mean, you put this technical platform, uh, how, right. how did you guys yes. put that together? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we had this Wix prototype and then the co-founder from the education school, he had been to another hackathon and he just posted on that Facebook group being like, Hey, we have this initiative. We're looking for a technical co-founder. Yeah. And, uh, this MIT student reached out Fernando who became our first CTO. 
and built the first iteration of Room to Learn. Yeah, none of us really had been in product roles before. So we pretty much just like would very scrappily like draw concepts together or like whiteboard it out and have Fernando build it out. Um, I think he and our later engineer, Kelvin, had a lot of fun with just experimenting with different uh, different tech stacks and uh, different languages. So uh, how I how I met Jane for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, we had both as ed tech startups been given um, kind of like free desks at this co-working space. And so I walked into this very, very empty space. I, I don't even think the internet had been set up properly yet <laughs> when we were there. Right, yeah. Everybody was on like we had cellular hotspots. Hot yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you walk into this co-working space and they wanted it to be massive. So there were like hundreds of these very fancy chairs and very fancy desks, but nobody <laughs> sitting at it. And I was led to a little desk area and uh, I saw uh, Ryan Leaf, who who uh, I think worked for with Room to Learn to uh, help build the technology out further later, um, and Jane. And we were like, oh, hi. <laughs> and, and then we were <laughs> the only people in this massive co-working space. It was like just us there. <laughs> yeah, it was like us, this tiny island in like a sea of furniture slash like painters and contractors coming in and out to set up the space. It was like, it's kind of odd, but by the end of our time there, I think GSB Labs had become this like thriving startup community, which sadly had to close down during, uh, due to COVID. Yeah. Due to COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So Ryan was our CTO at the time when we moved over from the iLab to GSB Labs. That was, uh, I haven't shared this much publicly. I, I wrote a little piece about it on Instagram a few months ago, but that was probably the start of my unraveling slash the unraveling of Rupert. As soon as I came in. As soon as Sev <laughs> came in. Yeah. It's so that was I, a big transition for you because you were coming from the iLab, which was like a Harvard startup space. And there were a mm-hmm. bunch of other people doing, doing similar-ish things there. Is that what started it or... I think more so it was the fact that Grace left the company around that time. Oh. Yeah. So there was a big contract that we were vying for that I flew out to California to pitch um, at a district for back in December. And I thought that had gone really well. You know, I uh, we were teaming up with some architecture firms that we built relationships with over the years from conferences. And they trusted us to come in as like the technology partner to do, um, you know, surveying students and teachers and really informing the design process. So um, we found out sometime in December that we didn't get the, the project. You lost and- a pitch competition? It wasn't a pitch. I guess you could think of it like a pitch competition. It was like an RFP. So, so we you lost- had been getting first place at pitch competitions your whole life. <laughs> and then at the at this critical pitch competition, it unraveled. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It unraveled. And it would it would have been like our biggest client. So that like really put a dent in things. And by that point, like we had started paying ourselves, me and Grace, um, like very minimal salaries, but it just wasn't enough. And, and we didn't have, you know, proper healthcare and things too. And so I think, um, Grace recognized before I did that it was just time to let go and time to move on. And so she moved on 
Um, I was in the state of like, oh, why would you give up now? Like we were so close, like, you know, we may have like done this 10 times, but maybe at the 11th time it'll work kind of thing. And so we were like really at odds. I mean, I, I think that was like a really hard time for both of us. Um, I mean, I can speak for myself and say, like, I feel like I lost a really, really good friend. And from like a legal standpoint, it kind of felt like a divorce, you know, like we had to talk about equity. We had to like, you know, figure out like who owned what amidst like this disagreement about direction. Um, so there was a lot of emotions. It was, it was really tough. I'm so thankful I did have you guys though, like you and Joey and Ryan, cause like you kept me grounded and actually coming into the office every day. Also at the time, another one of our clients was refusing to pay us for work that we are already done. So I just had like all these legal things on my plate that like are not my strong suit. Right. (laughs) And yeah, so that was all kind of like spiraling at the same time. And so when you and Joey took me out for tacos and were like, hey, do you want to like come join College AI? My ears kind of perked up because I was like, oh, maybe this is like my saving grace. Maybe I'll have a second chance at this ed tech business. (laughs) Yeah, that one that one didn't go so well. Oh, you know, I guess that is kind of part. Part of your story. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, but uh, that's, that's really crazy. And um, just like speaking from my own experience, like it's really tough because uh, me and Joey also uh, kind of broke up for college AI. And uh, it's always very tense. And it's exactly what you said. It's like difference of vision. Um, it's, it's, it's just very anxious. And like, uh, it's just tough. It's just tough. Yeah. Time, I think time makes it better, though. Um, yeah. Do you and Grace ever, uh, have you chatted since then or? Yeah, we're definitely friends again. Um, we met up probably a year later. I was in a conference in near, uh, in Brooklyn. And so we met up for coffee and caught up and now we're like, we're back on a texting basis. So I'll like see something <laughs> room to learn related and text her about it. Um, and that feels good. Um, so you, you kind of, uh, jumped on board college AI. And, uh, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was during my whirlwind. Uh, so, uh, I don't know if I can get all the details, right. But what, what happened there? What were, what were we doing? (laughs) Uh, well, I saw you guys as like two very hardworking, very driven young engineers who had this innovative product to help students figure out where they wanted to go for college. Um, I hadn't seen anything like it. I thought it was interesting. And I think the fact that it came out of work from the professor you were working with. um, So there was some like institutional backing and you had investment. So I was like, okay, these guys are doing something right. Right. Let's see what they're about. It was the closest I had worked with engineers on a day-to-day basis. So I learned a lot from you guys just in like how you think. And I think you guys gave me a lot of free reign to experiment with marketing. So I learned about Facebook ads. I learned about landing pages and conversion rates. I think you helped with product too, right? Um, Yeah, product, like figuring out how to put together the user experience. And we designed that book together. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it was definitely like a terminalist time in like, but yeah, that was that was really fun. And we did some uh, some fun projects. I know from working with you, what was so great was uh, your uh, like, you can tell when somebody is like, 
creative and driven and is like going to figure it out and then and then innovate on top of it and that was just such a cool aspect of uh of working with you and why this podcast is going to number one <laughs> in like scandinavia in, in scandinavia <laughs> the number one you know you should do advertising in a country so that like just focus it all there then you can say you're the number one podcast in in, in know, like Uzbekistan Namibia. or something yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, like in retrospect, um, you realize all the mistakes you made. And, and one of them was uh, we loved experimenting. Um, and so we had like multiple monetization channels. Mm. And, uh, and and Jane was touching different parts of them uh, for sure. Uh, we ended up really focusing on this book that we were trying to ship out, like a personalized college guide made specifically for each student. But we, we were doing a little bit a little bit too much and 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 just like switch it like as soon as a good idea would come into our heads we would just go for it not thinking that you know it's not about the best idea sometimes it's about execution on an idea <laughs> just one <laughs> yeah i think i mean you and i have this in common and i think it's like a quality of people who are creative right like you see thing you see something or hear about something and you immediately want to try it out but you know when you're trying to run a business that's not always the best course of action. Right. It's actually right. usually better to stick to one thing and really focus and drill that to the bone and see if that works. Yeah. Um, and then you have enough data to, you know, really assess like, did this work or not? And if not, you move on to the next thing. After Room to Learn, you went and worked for Shift. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So what was your yeah. mindset when making that decision? Yeah. So, well, first I work for you guys with. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot we were in there. <laughs> like I'm trying to yeah. forget <laughs> this period or something. I haven't <laughs> Yeah. So at that point I was ready for a stable job and a stable paycheck and, you know, the drug, um, and more mentorship. Um, right. you know, I loved working with you and Joey and being, you know, in that innovation kind of mindset, but we were idiots. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> we should go. I don't know why. I <laughs> but I, I felt like I didn't have direction, you know, like yeah. when it comes to things like marketing, there are best practices, you know, like this is why you trust people with experience because they've like done X number of campaigns. Right. They know how things work. And, and we would give Jane a budget of like $200. <laughs> <They'd> be like, <laughs> can you get 20 customers off this? And like, I didn't realize that that was pennies <laughs> right it's in, nothing in like facebook ad terms yeah so i went on this journey of like figuring out okay at a larger scale company what kind of role would i fit into because as a founder ceo you kind of do everything you do marketing sales hr product like a little bit of everything and so i basically reached out to a bunch of people in my network for you know to get coffee and just like do these informational interviews and I landed on product marketing, which was this intersection of uh, storytelling and product and ended up working for a company called Shift, which is a SaaS platform that provides software for creative teams, um, mostly working on video projects. So people working in film and TV and advertisements. I spent about two and a half years there and I definitely learned a ton. I learned a lot about product marketing because I basically built the function from the ground up, learned how to work cross-functionally with product, customer success, sales, learned like what all of those functions actually do, and also learned a lot about what not to do. Okay, so 
you you reach the end of the line at shift. You're like, some I, I'm ready to switch it up. Um, and something was eating you inside, right? Maybe <laughs> yeah, a little know. bit. Uh, <laughs> around last fall, I started working with a career coach. It was more like a life coach, really. But she walked me through the designing your life process, which is hmm. a book and a methodology where you go through and like audit what kinds of activities energize you versus drain you. Um, you do some like mind mapping and like you uh, draw out some like possible five-year plans. And through that, I realized that I love listening to podcasts. I miss making things and I miss talking with my friends. And so I did a poll on my Instagram stories and was like, hey, should I start a podcast? And everyone but my younger brother said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, disregarding Jeremy, I uh, went ahead and started this podcast. Um, and yeah, I mean, I always saw it as kind of this like side hustle hobby thing. Yeah. And in the process realized I really enjoy it. I have a lot to learn and this could actually turn into a business. Yeah. And so it also just reached a point where I was spending so much time doing podcast work, like editing just takes forever oh, yeah. um, and, and like all the social media and everything on top of it. And so I was just burning the candle at both ends because my job was picking up too. And at one point, Ethan, my partner goes, you have to pick one. Like you have to pick, like something has to go. It took a while to rip off the bandaid, but I finally did. And I, I think I got a message it. from you when this happened, by the way, when you decided mm -hmm. to rip off the bandaid, it was like something <laughs> like, I have big news. And I immediately was like, Jane is starting a new startup. And I was like, can I be your first money in? Can I, can I put money into it? Um, but yes. then it was a podcast, which I am actually more excited about in many ways because uh, I get to uh, actually participate and and kind of follow along with it the whole time. And with startups, a lot of times people go into a corner and you don't hear from them <laughs> from a while. Yeah, I mean, so. with this, I feel like it's the best of both worlds, right? Like I get to meet such cool people like you yeah. who are doing the building and the making. And so I get a taste of it. I've always seen myself as a storyteller too. I think one of my strengths is like being able to talk to people and, and, you know, really listen to their stories and be able to connect people through that. Um, yeah. I miss hosting parties and, and dinner parties. And that was part oh, of the impetus Oh, we didn't even touch on this. that. Jane hosts <laughs> the best like themed parties. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. You came to my mermaid party. Yeah. My... Yeah. Mm -hmm. That party was great. And it's, it's not just great because of the awesome decor or the awesome food. Um, but the people you bring in are, you could, you could spend two hours with any one of them. They're such interesting characters, uh, and so smart. So oh. this was, well, we'll do plenty of that after the pandemic. Yes. And... Yes. I guess the last thing I have here is kind of wrapping up like in season one, you had some awesome conversations with like super driven, super unique people. Um, do you have any like favorite parts? Ooh. Um... I know I have a couple. Yeah. Why don't you share yours first? So it, I think my favorite episode, and it's kind of lame, but was with you and Jen. Uh, so Jen is Jane's sister who like kind of became a YouTube celebrity, like pretty young. Um, and just seeing that like big sister energy and like, 
um, the take on the whole situation. It, it's so authentic. It's, it's, it's so great. Um, and then the other one I really liked was uh, Ryan Chen, who uh, just has a super inspirational story where he's like an athlete who uh, was paralyzed from, I believe, the waist down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then got his life together, uh, tremendously. So, uh, so it's just, it's just an awesome story. Yeah. Ryan's amazing. And yeah, I met him through a Facebook group group called subtle Asian traits where he shared his story. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You have to come on. Not subtle, (laughs) not very subtle. (laughs) Um, yeah, but the, the Jen episode, a lot of people say they start with that one and that, by far has gotten the most downloads. I'm actually planning on putting out more video episodes. I actually have the rec- video recordings of all the episodes. So I'm going to oh, kind nice. of like re-release them on YouTube. So Jen will be one of them. With season two, I'm really excited because most of the guests are people I hadn't met before, but are just like like super badass, like grinding it out with their own businesses and figuring it out. And something I've learned through that is just like, you don't have to go to a good school to start a business or to to find the kind of success you want. And I think that's like a rut that I've been stuck in for the last few years. And probably because I started my business out of the Harvard slash Ivy League ecosystem. And so there's all these expectations put on you of like, you know, you need to grow to a certain size. The metrics and success you show have to reflect like the pedigree. But there's no rules to life or to business really. And that's why I really want to focus season two and this podcast on supporting creatives and creators who want to build a business that really fits in with their lives. Big teasers for season two. We've got some (laughs) big new characters. It sounds like. Yeah. Lots of new characters. It'll be good. I'll, I'll drop more teasers in the next month or two. (laughs) No spoilers. By the way, Jane, thanks for uh, uh, letting me, interview you. I appreciate it. Thanks for agreeing to interview me. I was debating whether to do this as a solo episode or interview, but a lot of you have spoken on Instagram that you want to interview. 75%. For the 25% of you, didn't I nail it? Like, (laughs) come on. Or you can just skip over the sub parts. Oh my gosh. You just do you. You Oh my gosh. (laughs) No, that would be so narcissistic. Hey, it's your podcast. I, I do want to experiment though uh, in season two and maybe do do some do some solo episodes that are just like yeah. talking about like one piece of business. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that'd be really cool. Um, what kind of things are you thinking about doing? Yeah, um, well, I was thinking about more like how to launch a product. You know, oh, getting yeah. to product market fit. A lot of that was like my last few years of working. I guess co-founder dynamics too, like how to build trust with a co-founder, either who you know already or you don't, Um, how to build a team, how to hire and fire the right people. Uh, How to know when to quit. How to know when to quit. That'd be a good one. You should get a bunch of people (laughs) who have failed a startup to to help answer. Um, Yeah. Um, No, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. Feel free to edit me out, you know, to do what you got, do what you got to (laughs) do. Same as last time. Just do what you got to (laughs) do. And that is a wrap on season one. Thank you so, so much for listening, watching and supporting this podcast. All the links we mentioned today are listed in the episode notes. 
We will be back for season two in June, all about designing your life around a thriving creative business. In the meantime, make sure you are subscribed on YouTube to the Inside Out with Jane Z channel because I will be re-releasing some of our season one episodes in video form. So between now and June, you'll have plenty of time to catch up on season one. Thank you again for supporting me and this show, and I will see you in the comments and online. Bye.